From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A big howdy to all of you listening to the podcast, The Conspiracy Show Podcast, which is everywhere. Just Google it. Also, those of you who take the show wherever you go with you on your mobile device uh, with The Conspiracy Show app, those of you who listen in on one of our affiliate stations, I think we're up to about 40 affiliates now across uh, North America. And uh, those of you who catch the live YouTube stream, those of you who join us every week without fail in the live YouTube chat, however and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. Just a reminder, no live YouTube stream tonight this morning. That resumes next week. Also, a quick reminder to check out my new podcasts, Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can subscribe at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. And if you like rock and roll and dark mysteries, you're going to love the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. New episodes drop every Wednesday at midnight Eastern. And it's part of the Jericho Network in association with West. Would one just Google it? It's available from Apple Podcast and Google Play everywhere, really. Well, we've just wrapped up another Easter season. Orthodox Easter just ended yesterday. Christos Anesti, Alethos Anesti, Christ is risen. Indeed, He has risen. So let's take some time and talk about the saints. Rosemary Ellen Guiley joins us once a month to discuss all things paranormal and supernatural. She's one of the world's leading experts in the field, and she's written almost 70 books, including the Encyclopedia of Saints. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? Well, I'm doing well, Richard. Uh, winding down the winter here, looking forward to my spring travels. I've got a lot of events coming up, research trips. It's uh, already been a busy year for me with the writing, editing, and publishing. Two subjects I love to discuss at this time of year, and one is the Shroud of Turin, and the other are the saints. And you you compiled and wrote and edited a, a major encyclopedic work on the saints. And I know you spent considerable time in Italy researching it. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to talk about uh, sainthood and and what it takes. What is what are what is required before someone is beatified? Well, the church now has specific procedures, and in the early days of the church. Uh, you were considered a saint mostly by popular acclaim. Um, and as the church uh, solidified and became more organized, they realized that uh, they had to have a better process for it. And so by the 12th century, there were rules in place for how a holy person could be evalu- evaluated for sainthood. And so now there are different levels. First, uh, someone who is... Um, like a good holy person but doesn't meet the requirements for sainthood, they're called venerable. That's a, um, a, a title that's given to some of them. But the first step to sainthood is beatification, um, to be a blessed. And um, there has to be proof of at least one posthumous miracle. Um, the communion of saints is um, intercessory. And so sainthood... Um, in sainthood, the person is elevated to this intercessory capacity to channel divine energy and help to uh, to the living who are in need of something and to bring about miracles. And those miracles are usually of a healing nature, and they're looked at very closely by the church and examined by doctors and scientists and 
all kinds of documentation is considered. And then after that, um, to be canonized as a saint, there have to be at least two posthumous miracles that are demonstrated satisfactorily to the church. And in earlier times, um, a long time could elapse after the death of a holy person before they could even be beatified or canonized. Um, And now the process uh, is um, much quicker. For example, Padre Pio, who died in 1968, was canonized in 2002. And that might seem like a long time to to a lot of people, but... By the hundreds of years of church history, that's a relatively short time. And uh, so uh, we have literally now hundreds of canonized saints in the Catholic Church. Uh, There are thousands of uh, beatified holy people and venerables. And it's been the practice of more recent popes, uh, starting in in the mid-20th century on, to beatify and canonize more holy people as uh, a way of attracting followers around the world. A lot of these um, beatifications and canonizations have been in countries that the church is trying to attract more uh, more followers. Uh, and uh, uh, so that's the formal process. And, you know, in other faiths, there are holy people who are considered saints. Um, it's not the same process that the Catholic Church follows, and sometimes just being venerated as a, a highly spiritualized person is uh, enough to get someone declared a saint. Now, I only learned this uh, last week uh, during St. Patrick's Day that that St. Patrick is not officially recognized by the Catholic Church as a saint. That's hard to believe. Well, in, in fact, the, the Church has had a very odd history uh, with its saints, and has uh, declared some of them to be um, even non-existent. You know, they've <laughs> kicked them out of sainthood. And <clears throat> Patrick was one of them. Uh, St. Christopher is another one. And some of the reasons for that are uh, what the Church says is lack of historical documentation about their lives. Uh, when we look at the histories of the saints and the hagiographies, which are embellished biographies, A lot of these were oral stories that were passed on down through the centuries, and they were probably very embellished from time to time in order to exalt the status of the holy person. And there may not be much historical documentation behind that. And uh, St. Barbara is another uh, saint that um, was removed um, from official status and um, it, it seems kind of peculiar to have saints that suddenly aren't saints. Because the faithful, the people who uh, have an interest in saint personalities and figures and and even uh, practice um, an adoration of them, um, don't stop believing in them. Uh, People still wear St. Christopher medals. I have them. I have a St. Christopher's medal on the door to my office and in my car. Uh, And... um, it's curious that the church has this official position, but that's the, the justification for it. You mentioned uh, Padre Pio, and I wanted to get into the, uh, to a discussion about uh, relics, but also uh, incorrupt bodies. And, and Padre Pio, to me, is uh, an excellent example. Uh, he died in, in 1968. 
but his, uh, and I don't know if you've seen uh, him in, in repose, but I, I think you mentioned you've seen some of his relics. But I, I, I'm looking at a photo here of Padre Pio. He looks like he went to sleep 10 minutes ago. How is this possible? Well, many of the incorrupt saints look that way. Uh, they look very, very, very lifelike, and some of that is with a little enhancement, a little wax, um, because uh, some of the body parts don't hold up uh, all that well. Um, incorruptibility is um, not a requirement for sainthood, but it's one of the things that the church has looked at over the years. And so after a holy person has been buried, they're often dug up sometimes more than once, for their bodies to be examined for incorruptibility. And scientists will say that, well, this is not necessarily miraculous here, and incorruption is not uh, no longer considered uh, officially a miracle by the church. But it could have to do with climate and soil and how a person died and um, the diet that they had. Uh, is there something go- in Italy where uh, we find so many incorrupt saints? Uh, was there something peculiar to the geography of the land that slowed uh, decomposition to the point of, uh, you know, a body lasting a very long time? Well, from the religious standpoint, uh, this doesn't have anything to do with, with all of that. It's, it's sanctity. It's the sanctity of the person that then preserves um, the physical body. And uh, stories abound about how sweet odors arise from the graves of the saints or when they are exhumed, there are these floral scents that waft out and the bodies look so amazingly intact. Well, a lot of them are not amazingly intact. They might, um, they might not be decomposed to the degree that the average corpse would de- decompose. Um, but they're not perfect either. Some of them might look a little more mummified than anything else. But uh, the church makes a determination about how well-preserved the bodies are, and uh, sometimes they are removed from their graves and they're put in these glass reliquaries where they're laid in repose. Uh, they're, uh, there was one famous uh, incorrupt saint who was seated uh, in a reliquary, and that's Catherine of Bologna. And... Um, they are then venerated by the, by the faithful. Now, usually what's exposed uh, is only the head and the hands and the feet. The, the corpses are clothed. And the heads don't hold up very well. Uh, and so they are often uh, enhanced with wax. And so the faces will look almost um, mannequin-like in, in some ways because they've been waxed and uh, enhanced with tints and paint. Um, the hands will often look kind of withered and, and the feet, too, kind of withered and mummified. Um, but sometimes they look remarkably fresh. And um, there are many accounts of how well-preserved saints were for a, a long time before the flesh started to deteriorate and these sorts of cosmetic things were, were then required. Um, and um, while I was in Italy some years ago researching this book, um, I toured around and visited a lot of uh, incorrupt saints um, and uh, relics of the saints. Uh, Italy is just absolutely stuffed with them. And it is truly amazing uh, to gaze upon these uh, these corpses, which are hundreds of years old, and by all accounts should be dust by now. Um, 
and yet there they are, uh, from the church's standpoint, preserved by their holiness. Now, many of these saints who have achieved this status, um, they were very, very severe on themselves. Uh, they practiced um, really rigorous uh, dietary restrictions. Uh, they often wore hair shirts, slept on nail beds, mortified themselves, denied every earthly pleasure they could think of denying, spent hours and hours in intense prayer, had ecstatic visions, frequently fell ill, um, and were in these rapturous states where they were in constant contact with something of a high spiritual nature. And um, whether or not this intensity does something to the body uh, it's an interesting question to consider. It is. I was just reading about Padre Pio, and again, uh, you were right. They, they did. Uh, his body was pretty much intact, except for parts of his face, which had decomposed, and they partially covered it with a silicone mask. Uh, they did a remarkable job. As I'm looking at his his face, it, it looked so natural. And uh, they said that he looked like he, even that he had just had a manicure after they had exhumed him. Uh, back in 2008, 40 years after his death. Now, I don't know uh, what kind of embalming techniques they used. I know, you know, with modern-day embalming, a, a body can remain uh, virtually intact for something like 30 years, particularly if they're placed in kind of a cement sarcophagus so the elements don't get to them. Uh, but uh, Padre Pio is just uh, a remarkable, remarkable example. Now... They don't have to be, obviously, uh, when we're talking about incorrupt bodies, we don't have to be talking about Christian saints. There are cases of Buddhist monks who die in the lotus position. I was reading about this, I think his name is Dashi Dorzo Itigalov. Have you heard about him? Well, I have, and uh, there are photographs of, of him on the Internet. It's amazing. He passed away in a lotus position while he was chanting mantras in 1927. And he requested that he be buried in whatever position he was in when he died, and so there he is. He's uh, uh, he's still upright in the lotus position, and, and he was buried that way, and then he was ex- exhumed uh, twice in 1955 and 73 and found to be incorrupt. And he was... Um, then reburied and exhumed a third time in 2002. And from the photographs, you can see that the body is, it is a, a bit withered and uh, the face has lost some definition, but it's, it's like he was frozen in time. Absolutely. Uh, midst of his spiritual practice. Rosemary, got to take a quick time out. We'll come back and continue to talk about the saints on The Conspiracy Show. Rosemary Allen Guiley. My name is Richard Serrett, back with more in a moment. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with me, and we're talking about saints. Uh, Rosemary, we were uh, we were talking about uh, incorrupt uh, bodies. These are the bodies of saints that are exhumed uh, sometimes 40, 50, 
a um, hundred years after their death and yet remain remarkably intact, not always. And as you say, sometimes they get a little bit of a help, um, a little bit of silicone here and a little bit of wax there. However, you wanted to talk about uh, uh, is it Catherine of Bologna. Yes, Richard. Out of all the incorrupt saints that I saw on my trip in Italy, I found her to be the most fascinating. And part of it was the journey that I had to take to get to her because uh, she's in a rather secret chapel in Bologna. Now, she was uh, a mystic who was in the order of the Poor Clares. That's the female compartment of the Franciscan order. And uh, she had the prototypical holy life with uh, visions and mortifications, you know, very severe on herself. She died at age 50 and was buried without a coffin. Hmm. And... 18 days uh, after her death, uh, she was dug up be- um, because people kept uh, who were coming to her grave uh, to um, pay their respects noticed this floral sweet odor wafting out of the grave. So 18 days later, they dug her up, and she was found to be incorrupt. Now, there was a little bit of skin that was hanging here and there, but it so amazed everyone, and she had this, radiant look about her, and also uh, they noticed that the corpse bled as well. That was a sign that something strange was going on. Actually, from a medical perspective, it was probably just blood that was being pressed out of the orifices as part of the uh, decomposition process. But nonetheless, she was in excellent shape. And so she was taken out of the grave, and she was placed in a seated position. It's the only seated Christian saint I've ever seen. Don't they typically bury popes sitting up? Um, they might. I, I think you're right about that. But um, the uh, the monks and the nuns, um, no. Uh, they would be buried uh, like everybody in a coffin. But uh, So she's in a seated position, and uh, she was not placed in a reliquary for a, for a long time. And she was dressed in her habit um, and with a Bible and a rosary, and people came and paid their respects to her and kissed her feet. Uh, well, over the years, her skin turned black, and it's ebony black. And uh, the explanation for that is that um, the smoke from all the candles in the church uh, eventually changed the color of her skin. And today she is in this tiny little chapel in Bologna, and uh, you have to know about it uh to go there, and it's uh, it's not advertised. I read about it in a book. Uh, when I went to Bologna, I had uh, even the tourist office couldn't tell me uh, exactly where it was, and I, I finally found this secret little tiny chapel where she is in a tiny little room and is only available during certain hours, and there are about 12 chairs in this room where people can come in and sit before her, and she is now encased in glass and pray and meditate. No pictures are allowed. Hmm. So finally find my way to this little chapel, and I get myself admitted. I don't speak Italian, and a lot of these people don't speak much English, but I managed uh, to get in there. And uh, it was amazing. She, you, you were talking about how Padre Pio looks like he's asleep. Well, Catherine of Bologna looks so lifelike that... Um, and her eyes are cast down uh, toward her Bible. She looks like she could look up at you at any moment. 
and she is extraordinarily well preserved. Well, I snuck my camera out, and uh, being the bad girl I was, Rosemary. <laughs> and I, I started surreptitiously taking pictures. Well, um, some nun, evidently they watched people in the room, and some nun came out from a door and chastised me. And uh, fortunately, I didn't get thrown out, but I had to put my camera away. But I did get a few pictures. But uh, she was the most extraordinary because she's seated, um, her skin coal black, um, very, very lifelike, and not out in public. Uh, it's almost like a secret to find her. Well, I, I just want to add one other little short story to that, because after I visited her, I went to the Basilica of St. Dominic. It's a huge church, and St. Dominic founded the Dominican Order, and they were the big inquisitors uh, during the Inquisition. And uh, Dominic also was incorrupt, um, and, but most of his remains are in this giant sarcophagus, and the only thing that you can see of his body is his head, which is in a reliquary. And there are some saints whose heads are preserved. Catherine of Siena is another one. So his head is there. Well, I took a tour of the Basilica um, for English-speaking tourists, and um, the, um, uh, the monk was very nice. Um, and uh, after the tour was over, I introduced myself, told him I was a writer doing some research, and um, asked if I could ask him some questions. And he said, oh, you want to see relics? I'll show you relics. And he takes me upstairs to uh, what would be the attic area of, of this huge church. It's an immense area, storage rooms, like a big department store. And it is stuffed, stuffed to the rafters with relics. Um, they also had a number of other incorrupt saints um, of, um, you know, no big personalities, but their bodies were incorrupt. They were also uh, stashed around the basilica and these glass reliquaries. Um, but up in the attic, they had body parts, bones, organs, um, and they were just all over the place. And he said, he said, all the churches are like this. We have so many relics, we have nowhere to put them. We don't know what to do with them. Wow. You got like the backstage pass. I did, and it was absolutely astounding. Uh, because as, as uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, there are uh, lots of churches where they've got the finger bone or, you know, the tongue or something like that. It's kind of morbid the way some of these corpses were dismembered and their bones and organs were sent around to different churches where they could be put on display for veneration. Um, but um, Italy is just overflowing with uh, saint parts. That, that they don't know what to do with. Have you had any strange experiences? Uh, I don't know, not necessarily a full-on miracle, but something when you've been in the presence of one of these incorrupt uh, saints or perhaps just a, a relic, a body part? Well, um, not an incorrupt saint, but I, I did have a mystical experience in Montreal, uh, and it was just um, a very low, not even a canonized saint, it was Frere André. Oh, yes, yes. And uh, he's got, um, it's the Basilica of St. Joseph, that was his patron saint, very big place in Montreal. And Frere André, um, who um, uh, never made it to sainthood, he was a doorkeeper for this order, but he had a miraculous um, healing ability. 
and uh, he would go out and he would literally heal in in the manner that Jesus did by telling people they were healed and by touching them. Um, and he developed quite a following, much to the consternation of his order, because they thought a personality cult was developing. And um, when he died, uh, he was buried in a black granite tomb inside the oratory. And people go and they touch the tomb to be healed. That's the custom. And uh, so I was in Montreal one year for a conference, and um, I uh, heard about the oratory. And uh, out of curiosity went, his preserved heart is also on display. Um, And I got in a very long line of pilgrims to go and touch the the tomb. And I wasn't expecting anything. I'd never heard of this um, man, didn't know anything about him. I was just curious. And when I touched the tomb, something happened, Richard, and I felt uh, it it was a rapture. It was literally a rapture, uh, just like the saints described, about being swept up into what I can only call divine fire. And I was in the presence of something highly spiritual and very transcendent, and it was... I felt like I was being consumed by this fiery energy. Wow. And uh, I wrote about it. It's in the introduction to my Encyclopedia of Saints. And it left me in tears. I was so overcome by this experience of just by touching this tomb, being swept up into some holy presence that I could only comprehend on an intuitive level, a spiritual level, like you, they say that you can't put these things into words, and it's true. Um, now, in subsequent visits to Montreal, because I would be invited back to the same conference, um, I made it a point to go to the oratory every time and touch the tomb, and I wanted that experience. I wanted it to have it again so much. Yeah. And I never had, I had other pleasant experiences, spiritual, meditational but I never had that divine fire experience again. And I think that's the case with mystical experiences. You you have a certain experience once, and then you might have another uh, extraordinary experience, but it's not going to be the same as uh, one you had before. That's remarkable. Do you know the story of, of uh, Frere Andre's heart being stolen from the oratory? Um, back in the, oh, yeah, back in the, uh, about 1973, and they, they believe it was separatists from Quebec. At that time, there was the separatist group, uh, the FLQ, and uh, the heart was stolen and basically held for ransom, and um, the church refused to pay the ransom. I think they asked something like uh, 50000 or 500000 It was 50000 and um, they said if they didn't get it, they would destroy the heart. They refused to pay it. Eventually, I mean, the story went worldwide, and uh, they received a tip. Police received a tip, and they ended up recovering um, the heart in the basement of a house, I think, somewhere on the island of Montreal about a year later. Oh, my gosh. You know, I, I do recall now hearing about that, but um, I'd forgotten the details. Um, amazing the value you know that is placed on on something like this uh, these these relics they really are beyond value and uh, I, I was also very impressed with um, uh, the room where the the black tomb is uh, the walls are covered with crutches and canes that it said that people threw them away 
after being spontaneously healed by touching the tomb. Now, you would think that somebody like Frere Andre would be canonized, but uh, he's only a blessed, uh, and maybe it's because he lacks the posthumous intercessory miracles. Um, but I think sometimes it, it seems that the church doesn't like personality cults to develop, and they I think certainly you're right. treated Pio that way. He was enormously popular when he was alive, and in order to suppress his popularity, he was forbidden to preach. That's remarkable. And, uh, he was allowed to take confession, um, but he was um, th- they restricted his his access to the public. It's crazy because Absolutely. you would think that the church would want people like that to go out and you know galvanize the energy uh, of the faithful. That's right. Spread the good news. Rosemary, we'll take another quick time out. When we come back, let's delve into miracles. Rosemary Ellen Guiley here on the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Keeping a watchful eye on the New World Order. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. We're talking about uh, saints, and of course, uh, she uh, wrote a major encyclopedic work on this very subject. How long ago did that come out, Rosemary, that book? Uh, Let's see, that came out around 2005. Oh, it's Uh, been 13 years. I was in Italy in 2004 uh, doing a lot of the research. And it, it takes several years. I started the work on this before I went to Italy. It, it uh, takes, uh, you know, a couple of years at least to, to write one of these things. I just found it fascinating. I grew up a Methodist. Me you know, too. People Me just too. assumed that because I was writing this book, I had to be Catholic. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I, I was just fascinated by this whole process of what people feel they have to do in order to become close to God and what the saints represent in that, and the things that they went through and subjected themselves to in order to achieve what they felt was that sanctity and purity. This is a, a short segment, so we'll we'll begin talking about miracles now, and we'll continue on into the next segment. But I wanted to start with a miracle that is has been associated with a lot of nuns and priests and so forth, and even a Padre Pio, who we mentioned earlier, and that... That has to do with the stigmata wounds. Explain what those are. Well, those are uh, imitations of the wounds of Christ. When he was crucified and the nails were put through his ankles and feet and the hands, uh, and he had the piercing of the spear on his side and he wore the crown of thorns, these are all the wounds of Christ. And some of these holy people... Uh, they spontaneously develop these same wounds, and they bleed, and quite copiously. Padre Pio had wounds in the palms of his hands and in his feet that uh, bled all the time. And uh, he couldn't even close his hands because of the wounds. He had to wear gloves. And um, uh, those are some of the relics that I've seen at uh, a church in New York City. Uh, They have his bloody gloves and bloody socks on display um, and this seems to come during periods of intense prayer, um, and it's a spontaneous uh, sort of thing. They, they might even pray for it uh, as, um, you know, to, to be visited by the stigmata, to exhibit the stigmata uh, as their way of becoming closer to Christ and, and closer to God. Um, 
Theresa Neumann from Germany was another example of that. Um, and she also bled copiously, and her wounds actually even got infected. Uh, and once they get the stigmata, the stigmata don't go away. Mm. Uh, they have the rest of their lives, and sometimes they only bleed um, periodically, and sometimes they bleed all the time. And Theresa Neumann, she it looks like from the pictures I've seen, she actually bled from the eyes. I believe so, yes. And uh, she had head wounds. Um, usually the, the stigmata happen on the hands and the feet. Those are the most common. But she, she had wounds everywhere. And um, bleeding from the eyes is um, not that common. Uh, it's more ascribed to statues, uh, statues that bleed oil and blood um, and uh, some sort of watery substances. But... Um, she was uh, sorely afflicted uh, during her life. Well, here's something curious, and not to in any way uh, try to undermine, you know, the authenticity of, of the stigmata wounds, because it is remarkable. But in, in studying the Shroud of Turin, for example, um, one of the things that they determined was that, that uh, Christ could not have been nailed to the cross uh, through the palms, the fleshy palm of the hand, it would have had to have been uh, done through the wrist. Otherwise, the body would not have supported itself. The, the nail, not to get too graphic, but would have would have cut right through the, the fleshy part of the hand. Uh, so you would think that an actual stigmata wound would be in the wrist and not the palm. And I, I have read that as well, mm-hmm. and it certainly makes sense, because you would think that the weight of the body, uh, the hands would just be torn right off. <clears throat> and why the stigmata show up on the hands is uh, is very peculiar. Um, well, because that, maybe uh, because that's the way most people consciously, or that's the way most people uh, think. Uh, all the paintings depict Christ being, you know, his hands being pierced. So that's in the in the consciousness, I guess. We'll take another quick time out. We'll come back and uh, continue to talk about saints and miracles. Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Check out her online bookstore at visionaryliving.com. Back with more. Don't go away. The truth will set you free. But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. And we are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and uh, we are talking about uh, saints and uh, incorrupt bodies and miracles. Uh, do you have a, a particularly favorite uh, a story of a miracle associated with a saint? Well, I would. that's really a tough one. Most of them are healing miracles where people have been healed of cancer and blindness and, you know, chronic diseases, uh, you know, things like that. Um, some of the miracles that are associated with the Virgin Mary, um, I think, I find very interesting where there are physical phenomena and manifestations uh, that uh, also have prophecies associated with them or healing springs like uh, Bernadette of Lourdes uh, goes to a grotto, has uh, visions that... Um, of, of a woman in white who announces herself as the Immaculate Conception, and then a healing, uh, a spring nearby then suddenly becomes the healing waters of Lourdes. And um, over the years, 
well, there's probably been millions of people now that have gone to Lourdes, but but certainly uh, thousands of cases um, where people have reported being healed or cured of something. Interestingly, there are only 68 cases that have been validated by um, a medical bureau that that uh, looks at these cases of unexplained healing. But um, I, I find uh, now Bernadette, of course, is a saint, and so. Um, these sorts of experiences that are associated with visionary uh, phenomena um, and um, take the, um, the, the, the children from Fatima, Portugal, who were visited by uh, Mary, and uh, they were given uh, prophecies and secrets, and uh, people would gather by the thousands hoping to, to have um, visions uh, as well, and the, the miracle of the spinning sun has become famous, where thousands yes. uh, of people supposedly saw the sun shoot off multicolored rays of light and spin around and dip down in the sky. And that was also reported at Medjugorje as well. Yes, tens of thousands uh, of people in Fatima supposedly saw that. They didn't see the apparition uh, of, of the Virgin Mary, only the three little uh, Portuguese children saw that and that that apparition apparently extended over like a period of 6 months or something uh in 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 Fatima there's another apparition i mean we're familiar with the the one in in Fatima and uh, our lady of guadalupe uh and uh, and others i think there was another one in uh, Quito uh, Ecuador there's one that i wasn't familiar with and it's uh, it's fairly recent it happened in in uh, in Cairo, uh, it's called the Marian apparition in I, I believe it's pronounced Zaytun back in 1968. Are you familiar with this? I am, and I find it one of the most interesting cases of Marian apparitions. Now, the church looks at Marian apparitions. There are thousands of reports of sightings of the Virgin Mary all the time, and they examine those the way they consider the intercessory miracles for uh, candidates for sainthood. And so there are authenticated uh, apparitions of Mary, and there are unauthenticated cases, cases that look convincing, but the church doesn't put the official stamp on. And that's the case uh, from Egypt here. Zaytun is a a suburb of Cairo, and um, there were 70, uh, actually more than 70 apparitions uh, of Mary that appeared uh, around St. Mary's Coptic Church. And many people saw these. Um, the figure was a woman uh, uh, in dazzling white, uh, and the figure would hover over the church. What makes this case very interesting is that photographs were taken uh, and film was taken. And these photographs have, have never been debunked, and they're, they're quite dramatic. Uh, you can find them on the Internet. And uh, one of the most dramatic is, is a figure uh, which looks like this dazzling woman in white um, in the air with the church in, in the background. And um, uh, it was estimated that between a quarter of a million and a half a million people saw these apparitions uh, over over this period of time. Now, uh, one strange thing about the appearances of Mary is that they just sort of spring up spontaneously, and sometimes they're uh, 
presented to masses of people and sometimes just to a few, like uh, the way Fatima started out. Um, and they go on for a while, maybe a few days, maybe over a year, and then suddenly stop. And uh, Egypt um, stretched from 68 to 69. Medjugorje, which started in 1981, that's still going on, uh, apparitions of Mary. And um, there were also other aerial phenomena that people saw in in, uh, Egypt. Uh, There were smells of sweet incense, again, which is associated with sanctity. Um, People saw clouds of incense and light shooting across the sky. Um, Objects that you might call UFOs, even. Uh, Silvery uh, orbs and uh, lights moving around in the sky that would accompany these apparitions. And um, they would last for uh, a minute or more, which is a long time for, for these experiences. This this apparition in, in Cairo is a little different from, uh, let's say, Guadalupe or Fatima in another way, and that is that, that uh, Egypt is, it's not a Catholic country, they're, they're Orthodox, or it's a branch of Orthodox, the Orthodox Church. It's the Coptic Orthodox uh, Church, uh, and and this one was uh, declared to be a, an actual real apparition by the, the the Orthodox Pope of Alexandria, but the the Catholic Church has yet to sort of weigh in officially on this one. And interestingly, the first witnesses to the apparition were Muslims. Ah, that is interesting. Very interesting. Let me ask you the I guess the uh, the big pink elephant in the room question on on the Marian apparitions, and that is because you mentioned um, unidentified flying objects uh, that have been seen in connection with these apparitions. What do, what does your your uh, gut tell you? Are we are we dealing with a, an apparition of the Virgin Mary, or is it some sort of an alien deception? What do you think? Well, it could be, and that argument has been made. Um, ufologists certainly have looked at. Um, these manifestations as um, maybe uh, something of an ET nature. Um, the, the thing about them, though, is that um, they have a purpose of, of galvanizing people to um, spiritual faith. Uh, and even you don't have to be Christian to be affected by them. Uh, and is that a purpose of ETs? Um, would some ETs have that? Um, want to undertake that that kind of of disguise uh, in in order to organize people, especially around religious faith. Um, but it is odd that so many of these apparitions, and that, that's what the church calls them, uh, apparitions. They are accompanied by rafts of unusual aerial activity. Uh, so um, does a portal open up and we get multiple kinds of phenomena coming in? Uh, that's a possibility, too. But they do seem to be very targeted to, um, to religious faith. Uh, Mary will often issue statements uh, to the visionaries uh, to pray more. Um, she might chastise people for the way the world is... is uh, um, being run with so much violence, and that bad things are going to happen if we don't shape up. Uh, so um, the interesting thing is that some ETs have those messages too. Shape up, or the world is uh, you know 
and not, not going to survive. That's right. You mentioned strange aerial phenomena. Now, it reminded me of Sally Fields and the Flying Nun. Do you remember that show? Oh, I do, yes. Yeah. I know she'd like to forget it, but um, I remember <laughs> remember watching it. And uh, that is sort of reminiscent of, I don't know if they took their inspiration from Joseph, Joseph of Capertino. Uh, this was an Italian saint who seemed to have a remarkable gift of levitation and, and flight. Well, he certainly was the extreme. There are there are many saints who were reported to levitate, which would be just kind of a little bounce up into the air. But according to stories, Joseph Copertino could uh, go way up in the air and hover for extended periods of time. Um, he was um, he had kind of an interesting background. He's a very poor student. Uh, he went around so much with his mouth open all the time that he earned the nickname the Gaper. Oh dear! And found, found his home in the uh, Franciscan order, um, but he was not popular with with his uh, fellow monks because almost anything of a spiritual nature, a church bell ringing or incense burning, could send him into these raptures where he would you know, bounce around in the air, and it got to be very distracting. Nobody wanted him around during Mass or church services, and he was confined to a room with a private chapel for many years of his life. In fact, he got shunted around from monastery to monastery because nobody wanted him. But he even levitated in front of a pope, I think it was Pope Urban, um, might have been Urban VIII. Um, he went to kiss the pope's foot, and levitated into the air. Uh, one of the things I, I find interesting about his case is if, if this is, if the levitation was a resulting phenomenon of his spiritual practice and connection to the divine, why do we not see levitating saints today? Um, we have degrees of levitation in, in yogic practices. Yes, yes, the flying um, yogis. Flying yogis, but it's more more like a hopping, you know. It's, uh, you can't have everything, Rosemary. But you <laughs> kind of hop up into the air. Whereas the stories of Joseph was, you know, he was literally like a bird, uh, and he could hover up in the trees. And he's unique. He's really unique in sainthood. Pope John Paul. Just uh, we just got a couple, a couple minutes here, like two minutes here. But Pope John Paul II has he been beatified yet? I do not know off the top of my head. But if he is at some point, because I know they were moving in that direction, if he is, will they exhume him? Is that part of the process to beatification? With the popes, I believe it's different. They have tombs in the Vatican, in St. Peter's Cathedral. There's a lower level where the popes are entombed because the pope is automatically considered a saint. So I doubt they'll be digging him up. I'm trying to think of any other popes who got dug up, and uh, I can't think of any. <laughs> All right, well, we'll leave them be then. Rosemary, always a pleasure. And again, the website, visionaryliving.com. We'll talk to you next month. Okay, thank you, Richard. Always a pleasure. Likewise. My thanks to Ian Robertson, Albert Vinzel, and Ryan White. Great job, fellas. I'm back next week talking the Shag Harbor UFO incident and more. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. <laughs>
How many more 